Good morning, everyone. That was a very weak good morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. Still weak. <laughs> We're going to get started. I'll give up on the strong good morning thing. We've come to lesson six of our study through this book, The Israel of God, and uh, we do have quite a bit of ground to cover. I'm, I'm really enjoying this book. I hope that you are as well. Of course, we're addressing a theological question. Is there a holy land today? Is Israel, ethnically speaking, God's chosen people? But I hope that you're seeing there's also a lot of, um, there's also a lot of practical stuff in this book. Um, and really, you could see it in the title of this lesson, The Israel of God, Its Lifestyle. Uh, who is the Israel of God? Well, all who have faith in Christ are the true Israel of God, and they are to live with a particular kind of lifestyle Uh, We are sojourners. We are exiles. That will be the point that's made here in this uh, section of the book that we are considering. And I think it's, it's wonderful to consider. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will move through this lesson. Our Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us on this Lord's Day morning to fix our minds on the truth of the Holy Scriptures. I pray that you would fill our minds with truth, that you would... Further captivate our hearts and cause us to love you, O Lord. I pray that you would especially give us a clear understanding of our identity in Christ Jesus, uh, that we would see ourselves as your people, as sojourners and exiles, and that we would live in this world accordingly, O Lord. Uh, Do help us uh, to have and to maintain this mindset, uh, to store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Help us to do this for our good and for the glory of your name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let me move through the introductory material of Robertson's book here, starting with page 85. I have a few quotes. A basic factor that defines the Israel of God in the context of the new covenant is its lifestyle. What is the pattern of life for the Israel of God as delineated by Scripture is what he says. So do you see the argument he's going to make? Uh, We've been considering this question, what is or who is the true Israel of God, in different ways. Uh, But one way that we are uh, now going to consider that question is by looking at the lifestyle of of God's new covenant people. What is the new covenant lifestyle? And that might help us to further understand who the true Israel of God is. B, a number of images in Scripture depict the lifestyle of the people of God. They are members of a kingdom that has come and is coming. They are the church militant seeking by the proclamation of the gospel to bring the earth into conformity to the righteous rule of the one true God. They are a chosen bride awaiting the arrival of the groom. They are the body of Christ knit to Him and to one another by His Spirit. Do you see what Robertson is doing here? He's reminding us of all of, well not all, but some of the different images that are used in the New Testament to describe uh, the people of God. These images are all very helpful uh, to us for us in seeking to understand our identity. And then see, he says, but none of these images captures the state of the people of God in the present age quite like the picture presented in the epistle to the Hebrews. So Robertson is still going to uh, have, help us look at the epistle to the Hebrews here. The people of God today are depicted in the book of Hebrews and in other places As a people of the wilderness, having been delivered from the guilt and oppression of sin, they suddenly find themselves in a barren territory 
filled with dangers as they move toward the land flowing with milk and honey. In a distinctive way, the lifestyle of God's people in the present world should conform to this life in the wilderness. So, the new covenant people of God are sojourners. They are depicted, in, using another term also in the New Testament, as, as exiles, as being strangers on earth, as not having a, a homeland, you see. Uh, but here we are sojourning, uh, moving towards the promised land. So, if I were to move it back to the theological question, is there a holy land in the world today under the, this new covenant era now that the Messiah has come? Christians should say no. Uh, we are not at home. There is no homeland for us, but we are awaiting that homeland. We've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, and we are now sojourners moving towards uh, the, the holy land, the promised land, and that is the new heavens and new earth that Christ will bring into existence at His second coming. And so, it is important for us to pay attention to the way in which the Scriptures depict the lifestyle of the people of God under the New Covenant. Now, I've broken this chapter into two parts because there's so much ground to cover. In the first part, we will look at the wilderness theme, the, the wilderness in Israel's historical tradition. And, and by this, Robertson is just simply meaning we're going to look at the history of what the Old Covenant people of God actually experienced in their being delivered from Egypt, led out into the wilderness, wandering there for a time, and then eventually taking possession of the, the land, the literal land, in Palestine that was promised to them. So we will look at the historical tradition, and then we will look at the development of the wilderness theme in Israel's theology. So there was an actual historical event that took place, Exodus, wilderness wanderings, conquest. But there is also this wilderness theme that is present throughout the Old Testament as well. And so we will look first at Deuteronomy, then at the prophets, then at the Psalms, and then next Sunday when we come back to finish out this chapter, we will look at the New Testament and how the New Testament talks about the lifestyle of God's people under the New Covenant era. Uh, so let this develop, let this sink in. I think these themes are, uh, these stories and themes are very important for us to, uh, to recognize. Uh, first of all, Robertson says, to differentiate between a historical and a theological phase of the wilderness concept in Scripture does not imply that the historical tradition has no theological content or that the theological development is not based on history. It merely acknowledges the form in which the presentation is made in Israel's own record. On the one hand, Scripture presents a wilderness history whose prime message is embedded in the events themselves. On the other hand, the wilderness theme is developed in a theological tradition based on the history, and you are all thinking to yourselves, I don't know what that means. Um, as I read this in preparation for this morning, I thought, yeah, that's kind of a, a confusing quote, in fact, pulled out of, out of context. But I think I can explain it to you. In this chapter, Robertson is going to make a distinction between the actual history that Israel lived through and then uh, the theme of wilderness wandering that is picked up uh, and developed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And he's saying it's good to, to make that distinction, even though the distinction, you can't be made strictly speaking. In fact, when Israel experienced the uh, exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the conquest, when they experienced it, all of their experiences also contained 
these themes. They were learning from these, these themes that were embedded in the history itself. And then, of course, these themes are not divorced radically from the historical experience either, but rather Deuteronomy and the prophets and the Psalms, they are, they are developing these themes, but they are rooted in the actual history. So, Robertson is a careful theologian here, and he's wanting to just make that point. Perhaps I could have skipped it with you this morning instead of drawing attention to it, but here we are. Letter A that was kind of introductory to this uh, first major section. Letter A, perhaps the most basic aspect of the wilderness experience in Exodus slash number or through numbers is its setting. This period of Israel's history is an interim period between the Exodus and the conquest extended in duration because of the sin of Israel. You're noticing the typos probably. There is conquest and then earlier I also saw something else. Context. I copy and paste from PDFs, and I don't always catch the the, the, the failures of the copy and paste uh, mechanism there. But what is Robertson saying? He he is saying that we have to pay attention uh, to Israel's history. There was a great act of deliverance that took place as Israel was set free from bondage in Egypt, and eventually they would take possession of the promised land. But for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And it was a 40-year period of time uh, that they wandered. I I said you're noticing the typos. You weren't because you didn't have the outlines, huh? I could have let it go. Uh, Thank you for for passing those out. Um, Why did they wander for 40 years? Why did Israel wander for 40 years? It was because of their disbelief, because of their sin. But this entire history is a picture An earthly picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus, isn't it? Can you see it? So Israel in bondage in Egypt is a picture of humanity's bondage in sin. It's a picture of this. Um, Pharaoh is a type of, of Satan himself. His kingdom is a kingdom of darkness and oppression. And what did God do except deliver His people out of that bondage, out of that darkness and oppression. He, he, he delivered them out of it, and He delivered them out of it to move them towards the promised land. Again, it's a picture of our redemption in Christ Jesus, for the same thing has happened to us, hasn't it? We have been set free from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of the Beloved Son, and we have as our destination the promised land the new heavens and new earth. So Israel experienced something on earth that is a picture of what all who have true faith in the promised Messiah experience spiritually and eternally. But in between Egypt, bondage in Egypt, and the possession of the promised land, what did Israel experience? Forty years of wilderness wanderings. They were without a home. They depended upon God daily for provision for manna from heaven. They were assaulted on every side, and yet God preserved them. He gave them food to eat and water to drink in the wilderness place. He even provided meat for them when they were tired of the manna. He sent them quail, probably, uh, to to satiate their hunger. 
Uh, God was gracious to them in the wilderness. And what Robertson is wanting us to see, he's wanting us to see that this, this also matches the experience of the Christian. Not only have we been set free from Egyptian bondage, a type of Satan and his kingdom, and not only do we have as our destination the new heavens and new earth, the promised land, uh, pictured by uh, the land that was given eventually to Israel, but we also... Uh, we also sojourn in the wilderness. Uh, that is the point that Robertson is making. This period of Israel's history is an interim between the Exodus and the conquest, extended duration because of the sin of Israel. The wilderness experience plays a significant role in Israel's redemptive history throughout the subsequent traditions of Israel. Okay, so that is the most basic aspect of the wilderness experience in Exodus through Numbers. A second basic aspect of the wilderness theme arising out of Israel's historical experience involves the formation of the people into a covenant community. This is letter 2b if you're trying to catch up with me. God enters into covenant with this people. God reveals Himself as the God of the covenant to Israel at Sinai, a mountain in the desert. There in the wilderness the bond of the covenant are formalized and confirmed, and, and so too we have entered into covenant with God. Not the old covenant, but the new uh, the prominence of Moses in Israel's formation, formative history must also be noted. This one great personage lowers over the entire wilderness experience. That, that can't be a, the right word. Again, a typo. He fulfills the twofold role of mediator and leader of the people. So there's this great figure who leads the covenant people of God in the wilderness. And we too have a great figure who leads us in, in our wilderness wanderings. He is not Moses, but he is Christ the Lord. He is the covenant head. He is the only mediator between God and man. C, a third characteristic element of the wilderness existence in Israel, of Israel in Exodus through Numbers is its dual nature. The wilderness is depicted both as a region of great danger and at the same time as a place of wondrous deliverance. Israel can respond in two ways under these circumstances. The people can offer to God a spirit of obedience and submissiveness as the product of their faith or they can rebel against their plight and display distrust of their covenant Lord. I do love this emphasis here, and I'm, you could hear me constantly getting ahead of myself by making the connection to the new covenant with you, and, and Robertson will do that more explicitly later. But in the wilderness, Israel both experiences great danger, and yet they have been delivered by the Lord. And so they are called to walk. They are called to walk by faith and not by sight in the wilderness. They are threatened, they are tempted to be fearful and to be anxious, and yet they are to trust in the Lord daily. They have not yet taken possession of the promised land, but they are to trust in the Lord daily, that the Lord will sustain them and protect them and give them victory over all of their adversaries. And this is our experience under the New Covenant. We too walk by faith and not by sight. We are assaulted on every side. We are to trust the Lord daily. We are to not despair, but we are to trust Him and walk with Him by faith. The third basic characteristic of Israel's wilderness experience, that of danger and deliverance, of threat and promise, also finds explicit development in Hebrews. In other words, the book of Hebrews, which is a New Covenant book, uh, picks up on this and brings exhortation to the New Covenant people of God to learn from Israel's wilderness experiences, right? Uh, to not be like them in their moments of weakness and failing, and to be like them uh, in, in those places where they 
uh, did indeed succeed. We are exhorted to to walk by faith and not by sight and to trust the Lord, etc. It happens in the book of Hebrews. It happens in other New Testament books as well. So, there is the actual history of Israel being delivered from Egyptian bondage and heading off towards the promised land. But there is a period of wilderness wandering or sojourning. There is the actual history But here Robertson wants us to also see that this this theme is picked up, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old. This theme is picked up, and it is rather frequently put before uh, the people of God, and they are encouraged and exhorted by it. Look now at the section titled Deuteronomy. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we find this wilderness theme. So, think with me for a moment. You have um, Exodus through Numbers, and this section of the Bible largely tells about uh, the Exodus and the establishment of the the, the Old Covenant. Um, The book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses, but it tells us about things that happened near to the very end of of Moses' life as the people are preparing themselves to finally, after years of wilderness wandering, go in to take possession of the land. Deuteronomy, it it means second law. This is like a second giving of the law as Moses looks back on everything that has happened, uh, kind of gives the law all over again and offers warnings to the people about going in and taking possession of the land and how they are to live there. As you know, Moses would not enter in. It would be Joshua who would lead the people in. But we find um, wilderness themes in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy provides a new stage in the treatment of the wilderness tradition by the very nature of the structure of the book. It is an address by Moses to the people of Israel just prior to their entrance into the promised land. The experiences in the wilderness are recounted in a context of exhortation for the purpose of teaching a lesson. In other words, Moses says, don't forget what you have experienced. Don't forget the lessons learned. Don't fail like you've failed before, but move forward with greater strength. Look at Deuteronomy 8.3. It is there listed under A1a. Moses said to the people of Israel, And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you hear what Moses is doing here in this text? He is reminding the people of Israel, some of them who were were born in the wilderness and did not experience the exodus themselves, uh, many of them in fact, Uh, He is reminding them of their history, and He is wanting them to learn from their history. Do not forget that God humbled you. He let you hunger for a time. But what did He do? He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And why did He do this? The word that uh, is important here in Deuteronomy 8.3. That He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. He did this in order to teach you something. He did this in order to teach you to depend upon Him. But rather, I quote again, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see what Moses is doing? He's using this Exodus experience, this history, to teach the people of Israel about how they are to live constantly, yes, even in the land that would shortly be given to them. And we will see that the New Testament does something very similar. 
The New Testament wants us to remember this history. The New Testament wants to exhort us from this history to say, do not forget what God did with His people when He brought them out of Egyptian bondage and led them into the wilderness. How He gave them daily bread. How He allowed them to hunger for a time. You too, Christian, under the New Covenant, you are sojourners, you are wanderers, and you are to trust the Lord daily uh, for, for provision. Number two on the second page. It is interesting to note that the writer to the, co- the, the converted Jews of the New Covenant era adopts the same form of exhortation based on Israel's wilderness experience. I've just said that. Okay, now let us go to this section titled, The Prophets. We see this wilderness theme picked up by the prophets of old. Uh, They pick up on it and exhort the people of God from it as well. Number one, in their treatment of Israel's wilderness experience, the prophets of Israel are clearly aware of the historical tradition, but they also make use of that tradition. Letter A, the wilderness experience is closely connected with the exodus and the conquest, the exodus from Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, the establishment of the covenant, and the entrance into a fruitful land are grouped together in Hosea 2, 14-23. Let me grab my Bible. Hosea 2, 14-23 Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the day of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Now, of course, this text needs to be... Uh, explained in detail, and we don't have the time for that today. Uh, But I think you can see, even just on a quick reading of this text, that the prophet Hosea, so living long after the exodus and the conquest, uh, living after so much uh, of of Israel's history where they have been rebellious against the Lord, he picks up this, the wilderness theme, and he speaks of a future wilderness experience for the people of God. He speaks of the making of a of a future covenant, but he puts it into the context of wilderness wanderings. In other words, there was a wilderness wandering experience by the people after the Exodus in Israel's history, but there's going to be a kind of second Exodus, followed by a second wilderness wandering, followed by a, a second conquest, and there will be a making of a new covenant 
in these days. I think this is the idea of Hosea 2. When did the second exodus take place? We say at Christ's first coming when He actually conquered the evil one and set His people free from the domain of darkness. Uh, When did the second wilderness wandering take place? Well, it is now. We are sojourners and exiles. And when will the second conquest take place? When the Lord returns to lead His people, uh, Joshua, when Joshua returns to lead His people into the the promised land. Uh, That's a lot to digest all at once. But I wanted to read the text to you just to show you that indeed uh, this wilderness wandering theme is picked up by the later prophets and uh, they speak in such a way so as to give, uh, give the impression that there will be a second wilderness experience. Letter B. Equally strong in the prophetic treatment is the tendency to view the wilderness as a place both of both judgment and blessing. Uh, the second chapter of Hosea may serve again as an example. And you will have to uh, look at that on your own time. It's just too much for us to cover now. Letter C. The most fascinating aspect of the prophetic treatment of the wilderness tradition is its development of the expectation of a new wilderness experience. The covenant Lord will prepare a way for His people through the wilderness to lead them to their new Zion. You may look up Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5, 42:16, 43:19. In the wilderness God will supply food and water for his people. Isaiah 41, 17 through 20, 43, 19 through 21, and 49, 10. He will again make water flow from the rock. Isaiah 48, 21. The wilderness, in fact, will be transformed so that its barrenness will become a fruitful garden. Isaiah 35, 6 through 7, 49, 9 through 11, 55, 13. The revelation of the law is presupposed in this new wilderness experience, and a new covenant will be established. Isaiah 42, 21 and 24, 48, 17 through 18, 51, 7, 55, 3, Jeremiah 31, 1 through 6, 31 through 34. Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. Do I need to cite all these? I probably should, just so that you know that there are actual references to look at here. Even a new covenant meal will be celebrated. Isaiah 55 and Exodus 24 speak to this. The language used to describe the wilderness now goes far beyond anything actually experienced by Israel during its wilderness wanderings. Yet numerous descriptions of both judgment and blessing are couched in terms reminiscent of Israel's wilderness experience. The prophets use wilderness imagery to depict the barrenness that will be brought about by God's judgment. At the same time, the state of blessing in a transformed wilderness becomes the ordinary, the object of extravagantly poetic language. Um, and here I do have a few texts. Let me get through reading these and then I'll pause to, to offer some explanation to you about why all of this matters. Isaiah 35.1 The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Isaiah 35, 6-7, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Isaiah 41.19 I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. And here Robertson says under point D, The poetic extravagance emphasizes the continuing importance of the wilderness tradition. 
The wilderness experience is seen as an appropriate vehicle for setting forth eschatological or, or future expectations. Let me finish this out by reading E. Viewing the state of the New Covenant people from the same tradition, the writer to the Hebrews describes their future as an entering into rest after their life of wilderness wandering. Joshua did not give them rest, and they must be careful or they will perish in the wilderness. Yet God will not fail to fulfill His promise to the true Israel of God, for there yet remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Hebrews 4, 1-9 It is therefore the duty of those living in the wilderness of today to strive to enter that rest. That is Robertson on page 95. I've decided just to read all of that. I hope you are able to follow along with me, uh, and then I'll pause now to, to give some explanation. In the New Testament, when you see what the New Testament does with Israel's history, um, when it treats Israel's history, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and the conquests as typological, meaning as being symbolic of our redemption in Christ Jesus, one might be tempted to say, well, that's just something the Christians made up. Are you following me? The Christians decided to look at Israel's history in their writings, you know, the, the actual historical exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and the conquest. And they just decided to spiritualize all of it. Are you tracking with me? This Jesus shows up and He claims that He uh, has accomplished a, a greater exodus. And He's leading His people into the wilderness in, in a spiritual sense. And He will lead them into the promised land, uh, that is to say, in a spiritual sense, and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. Well, the Christians just picked up on these historical events and decided to spiritualize them. They made it up. Could you see how some might make that accusation against the Christians? Um, But what Robertson is showing us here is that, that, that no, uh, these, these... Wilderness themes are contained even within the Old Covenant prophets. That that the prophets who ministered even under the Old Covenant and whose writings are contained even in the Old Testament, they spoke of a future. They spoke of a future wilderness experience for the people of God. They predicted it. There were eschatological expectations that the faithful within Old Covenant Israel had. So these these themes aren't picked up for the first time in the New Testament, but rather these themes are contained even within the Old Testament Scriptures themselves. Uh, So that this isn't just a, a kind of a a fresh start. This isn't the Christians doing something with the Old Testament that ought not to be done. No, these themes are embedded within the Old Testament themselves. I mean, the most obvious way to see this, brothers and sisters, is in that Jeremiah 31 passage, that famous one, where where God speaks to Israel through the prophet, saying, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Right? There was this expectation amongst the faithful in Old Covenant Israel that something new was going to come. There would be a new exodus, a new and greater Moses, a new and greater wilderness experience, a new and greater conquest under a second and greater Joshua, Jesus Christ the Lord. 
It's not just the New Testament that speaks of these things, but the Old Testament speaks of them too and looks forward to the accomplishment of these things. Let's look briefly at the Psalms now because Robertson does, like to, does want to give special attention to the, the, the theme of wilderness wanderings in the Psalms. That the Psalms make use of the wilderness tradition is a fact of significance in and of itself. More important than the extent of the references to the wilderness in the Psalms is the purpose which this material serves. So, lots of references are made to Israel's wilderness experience, but more important is the purpose which this material serves. The use made of the wilderness tradition may be divided into several categories. He says, first, the psalmist makes use of Israel's historical experience to give thanks to God for His mighty deeds and for the revelation of His grace and judgment toward Israel. The references to the wilderness in Psalm 105, 39-41 may be viewed from this perspective. So some of these psalms will look back on Israel's historical experience in the wilderness and, and they will simply be used to give thanks to God for the mighty things that He has accomplished in the past. Second, Israel's history is viewed as demonstrating man's freedom to act while emphasizing his responsibility to act in obedience to God. Psalm 78 and 95 offer the best example of the use of the wilderness theme in this pragmatic, pedagogical, or teaching manner. Uh, so these psalms are meant to really teach the people of God uh, to live in obedience to God perpetually. Uh, don't be like the rebellious ones of the past, but rather be faithful to the Lord, even in the wilderness. Third, the psalms employ Israel's history to generate a consciousness of personal sin in the present generation. Psalm 106 uses the wilderness theme in this connection. And then I have here read summary on page 98. Let me do that quickly but before trying to make some practical application from all of this for us. Summary. The wilderness theme was extensively enriched in the theological treatments of Deuteronomy the prophets, and the psalms. Most significantly, the wilderness experience never became a sterile fact of Israel's past. On the contrary, it became the basis for describing the religious situa situation of Israel throughout the ages. The extensive use of the wilderness tradition in a context of exhortation makes the past situation come alive in the present circumstances of the Israel of God. At the same time, the wilderness experience has swelled to eschatological proportions. Along with the events of the Exodus and the entrance into Canaan, it has become the vehicle of expression for the fondest hopes of Israel. Intense poetic language has depicted the, transformation, the transformed desert as the climactic revelation of God's grace to Israel. It is against the background of the wilderness tradition in, Israel, in Israelite thought that the relationship of the wilderness theme to the people of the New Covenant may be examined. And then in the second portion of this chapter, uh, Robertson takes us to uh, the New Covenant to examine this theme there, which I think will be the most helpful thing for us ultimately. We simply did not have the time to, to make our way uh, through all of this. Uh, but brothers and sisters, how should we think about this wilderness experience in Israel's history and this wilderness theme uh, contained within the writings of the Old Testament and then ultimately the New. I, I think, brothers and sisters, we need to see ourselves as the true Israel of God. And we need to recognize that we are no longer in bondage. We have been set free. And yet at the same time, 
we are not yet home, that is to say in the new heavens and new earth, but we are sojourners on earth. Therefore, we should live as sojourners. We should live as strangers and exiles. That's not wilderness wandering language, that's exile language, but it's the same kind of idea. This is not our home. If you can't think of practical applications to be drawn from that fact, I, well, do talk to me. I'd like to help you. But just think of it. This is not our home. We should not live as if it is. And so when Christ says things like, my kingdom is not of this world, when He warns about storing up treasures on earth, it has what we're here talking about as its backdrop. Christ has come, the new covenant has been inaugurated, the kingdom of of Christ is here, but it is not here in its fullness, it's awaiting its consummation. So, we're not home yet. We are in a time of wilderness wandering, and therefore we we should live like sojourners. And we should do the same thing that Israel was encouraged to do in the time of, uh, from Deuteronomy onward, in the time of the prophets and, and just after the conquest. We should look back upon the great things that God has done and we should learn from them. We should look back on the experience of Israel in the wilderness and learn from the people there. We should learn to depend upon God daily for daily bread, from, for manna from heaven. To be content with what He provides. Uh, to take courage in Him, to walk by faith and not by sight, etc. We should look back and we should uh, take courage of when we consider the great works that God has done. It is right for us to look back and to think upon what God did to the Egyptians in the days of Moses. Look at how God rescued this poor, humble, oppressed people from Egyptian bondage by pouring out plagues upon them and demonstrating His authority over them. Take courage in that. But as Christians, are we to look back upon the Exodus alone? No, we are also to look at uh, the greater Exodus too. We are to look at the things that Christ has done. You're going to have an opportunity to do that in, in the sermon text this morning in Luke chapter 8. Because we're going to, we're going to see our Lord uh, sail across the Sea of Galilee. He's calmed the wind and the waves. That should remind us, by the way, of the parting of the Red Sea, right? Um, and He's going to come to the land of the Gerasenes and he's going, to, he's going to cast a legion of demons out of a man. Think about that. What is He demonstrating except His power even over the demonic? The Exodus was a type of that. The ten plagues were a demonstration of God's power and authority over over the false gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself. But Jesus sails across the lake, comes to the land of the Gerasenes, and casts out a legion of demons out of a man by the word of His power. He's a greater Moses, leading His people through uh, the Red Sea, as it were, saving them from the abyss. And he comes and he demonstrates that he has power over Satan himself. And he has come to destroy his kingdom. We should remember that. And we should take courage in in these things for the present. We have a Lord, we have a Savior who has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Right? Uh, So, I think there is much practical application to be had uh, from all of this. I hope this is clear to you. I did kind of struggle to outline this section. You could probably feel me struggling <laughs> as I was trying to get through this outline with you. Any thoughts? We do have a few minutes remaining. Any thoughts or questions? I hope you see why this is important. Melissa, yes. Yeah, just again, Jesus went through the wilderness too. Okay, th- yes. <laughs> Melissa said, 
she was just thinking that Jesus went through the wilderness too. He went out to be tempted in the wilderness. Um, and he succeeded there, right? Uh, wonderful. And there are Exodus uh, and wilderness themes throughout that temptation passage, aren't there? Very good. And those are the kinds of connections we need to make. Any other thoughts or questions? That was a lot to digest, I think. Um, Maybe one more thing to say by way of application. We need to know the Old Testament Scriptures, brothers and sisters. We really do. Read your Bibles. Read the Old Testament. Even if sometimes you're just kind of perplexed by the things that you see there, it's important that we read the Old Testament because Jesus, the New Covenant, and the New Testament... It's, it's not as if all of that's a fresh start. It all grows out of uh, the Old Testament and the Old Covenant experiences of the people of God. Uh, and the more we know the Old Testament Scriptures and the more we can comprehend the first Exodus and, and the Old Covenant and, and, and all that is meant by it, the more we will be able to appreciate what it is that Christ has accomplished and how very blessed we are in this new covenant era. But we are sojourners, and so let us sojourn well. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for this book, and I thank you for the clarity that it does bring to us, the help that it gives to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would, would grow in our understanding of our identity in Christ Jesus, that we would indeed see ourselves as the true Israel of God, uh, never to be puffed up with pride, but to be filled with a sense of humility, gratitude, and dependence upon You, O God. You are worthy of all of our trust and our praise, for You are our Redeemer, You are our Sustainer. And so we thank You, O God, for Your faithfulness to us, and we do pray that You would help us to sojourn well in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.